0: as we look at your word and we ask all of this in jesus name amen all right, Well, right we're in a series um, right now we're looking at some questions and we're answering them biblically and these are kind of major faith questions last week we looked at the question can we really trust the bible um, is it is it is it really god's word how do we know that what does it mean to trust the bible um, all of that good stuff and we talked about that last week from the book of second timothy and this week, uh, we're taking another question on, and that is, is there really only one way to God? This is probably um, one of the biggest offenses that pe- or problems people have uh, with Christianity. Other than, in our particular culture at this particular time, the sexual ethic of the Bible, which people have a problem with, Outside of that, people really have a problem with what we call the exclusivity of Christ. In other words, that there's no way to get to God and know God and have a relationship with God and ultimately to go to heaven apart from a saving relationship in Jesus Christ. People have a problem with that. Um, it's viewed as exclusive. It's viewed um, as, as as arrogant by some, narrow-minded. Um, we live in a very pluralistic, pluralistic age. And what that means is, is that there are a lot of different viewpoints. And you even in our country, uh, just let's boil it right down to our city. Uh, there are a myriad of religions and viewpoints represented right here in Orlando, even right here in Ballin Park, I'm sure. There's Christians, there are Muslims, there are Hindus, there are atheists, there are agnostics, there are religions that we probably can't even fully uh, explain. There are probably Wiccans and there are probably I mean all new age movement types of folks. I mean people with all sorts of viewpoints and beliefs. And even within the realm of Jesus and believing in Jesus, we would say there are some that even claim to know Jesus and believe in Jesus that have the wrong Jesus, right? And so they have a Jesus that we would say um, is different than the Jesus of the Bible, a Jesus that's not God or a Jesus is, who's, whose death was not sufficient to pay for sin or a Jesus who wasn't fully human or, or whatever, right? And so we've got all these other little uh, sects that, are, that, that, that splinter out. So there's just all these viewpoints, even right here in our city. And so you could turn on your phone and Google for places to worship, and you could find all kinds of things because we live in a very pluralistic age. And we take pride in our culture, in Western culture, in being tolerant of all viewpoints. And we've talked about this before, of how we have changed what it means to be tolerant. It no longer means to recognize that there are other viewpoints. It now, in many cases, means recognize and accept the other viewpoint as just as valid, as just as true as your viewpoint, or more so. And um, if you don't hold to that kind of tolerance, you're viewed as intolerant. And so when you come along as a Christian and you say, "Oh, well, I'm a Bible-believing Christian and I believe that Jesus is the way and the only way to a relationship with God, that kind of rubs people wrong in our culture today. And sometimes it gets very personal. You may have experienced this at work or in your family or with a friend or an acquaintance. You hear things like, you don't think a moral person or a moral Muslim uh, or et will, will go to heaven. It may turn very personal. You don't think my aunt. You don't think my grandmother. You don't think my husband. You don't think... And it gets very personal sometimes with this because people start attaching real faces and real names and real people to these things because this is real stuff. And, And so it's offensive to some people. But it may be one of the most, and it is one of the most, if not the most important truth that we continue to defend and declare in this pluralistic age and to understand that this is not something that we take over. You know, there's some things in the Christian life uh, and in the Bible that we look at and we kind of go, this is, this is important, this is good, God's Word talks about it. But a lot of Christians disagree on this. And at the end of the day, you know, it, it, grand scheme of things, uh, you know, I might even change my viewpoint on this at some point, right? And you get into things like certain things with spiritual gifts and different things. This is not one of those issues. This is not one of those issues that you look at and you kind of go, you know, this is a secondary or tertiary issue. This is at the heart of the Bible. And when you strip this away, and if you take it away, and you make Jesus a way and no longer the way, you are striking at the very heart of the gospel and the heart of the Bible. Um, And it's a major, major problem. I told you last week that one book that we're going to reference a lot um, over the next few weeks is a book by Timothy Keller called The Reason for God. I'm going to reference it this morning. He gives four arguments against, uh, basically that people give against the view that there can only be one true religion in his book. And I want to give you those four arguments right now that people give. And you've probably heard some of these. One argument that people give that you can't just have one true religion is that all, all religions teach basically the same things. Maybe you've heard that before. I mean, they're all just basically teaching you to be a good person, right? They're all teaching basically the same things. And Keller does a genius thing in his book, and he points out nobody would say that some of the religions in some parts of the world that teach child sacrifice as a way to please and honor God teaches the same basic thing as the major religions of the world. We would say they clearly teach something totally different. And anybody that studies and knows religion could be able to tell you that all religions do not teach the same thing. They teach very different things, even about very basic things like marriage, And so all religions do not teach the same thing. And you'd think that that would be an easy point to prove. A lot of people kind of hold to that. And they kind of say, well, all all religions are kind of the same. Some people say, um, religions, they all see some things that are true. They all have elements of truth in them. But none of them can really see all of the truth. God's just too big for that. You can't see all of the truth. And he points out an illustration that's been used over the years that people use to to prove this point. It's the illustration of an elephant and four blind men trying to figure out what animal this elephant is. And so one blind guy goes over and he grabs a hold of the trunk. And he goes, well, this animal, whatever it is, it's very snake-like. It must be like a large snake. And another one's got a hold of the leg. And he's like, well, no, it's, it's more like a tree. I mean, it's like a big old tree trunk. This animal must be more like that. And one's over here uh, patting it on the side. It's like, well, it's, it's kind of fat and soft. It's that kind of animal. And one's got a hold of a tusk, you know. And its I mean, they've all got these different viewpoints, right? And they all see something different. Some people say that's the way it is with religion. None of them can see all of it. They all just kind of see a part. And it's all true to a certain degree, but none of them can be completely true. And Keller points out how a guy named... Uh, Kind of an author, philosopher top named Leslie Newbigin came along years ago and he said, you know, there's a major problem with that illustration. Is that there's someone in the il- illustration that claims to see the whole elephant. And it's the relativist that gives the illustration. That claims to know that there is an elephant. And that that's what it is. And that his viewpoint is above all the other viewpoints. That he, And so he is claiming, you can't know all the truth, but he is also claiming, I do. And so his whole argument falls apart. And that's what you find when you go through these things is that at the end of the day, they all begin to fall apart philosophically. Not even getting into the Bible, just philosophically. You can't hold to a view that there just absolutely can't be one true religion or one way to heaven. You can't, you can't hold to that view and be really respected philosophically. It falls apart. Another thing people say is our religion is culturally and historically conditioned. This is a viewpoint that kind of says, yeah, Josh, you're a Christian, but you grew up in Alabama where there's like a bazillion churches and you heard the gospel your whole life. So it kind of makes sense, you know, your parents are Christian, that you would end up being a Christian. If you grew up in Afghanistan, you'd probably be a Muslim. But the problem with that is, as he points out, is that same viewpoint fails to see that your own viewpoint is conditioned socially and culturally. In other words, the reason you have a viewpoint that says, well, it's just cultural is because, well, your culture maybe has led you to believe that. And so the whole point is... you. That's not a good argument. Yeah, we're obviously influenced by society and by culture and our environments we grow up in. None of us would, but that none of us would argue against that. But that is not a valid viewpoint to exclude the fact that there could be one way that's right and another way that's wrong. Another one is people say it's arrogant to insist that your religion is the only right one. It's just arrogant. It's just arrogant to say that. But isn't it? Wouldn't it be? If that's arrogant, wouldn't it also be arrogant to insist that there just can't be one true religion? You see what I'm saying? It, it all begins to crumble on itself. And as, Keller, as Tim Keller says, he says, we are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but we're just exclusive in different ways. And that's the truth. Christianity is not the only exclusive religion. Everybody's exclusive in what we believe. If you hold to any form of absolute truth, and even as we saw relativism, you have to be exclusive. it, it boils down to it in different ways. We find out that we're exclusive. exclusive. So the question then becomes... Is there really only one way to heaven? What does the Bible teach? Does the Bible actually teach that apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ, no one can be saved? And if the answer to this question is yes, then how do we deal with this in a pluralistic age? How do we present this truth to people? And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 this morning, if you have a Bible, verses 1 through 12. What I want to do this morning is show you that yes, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way to God and show you in our text an example of how to share this. In the book of Acts, what you have happening is the church has been birthed. And Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has died, been raised from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. And then in Acts chapter 2, uh, you have Pentecost recorded where the Holy Spirit comes in power upon the church. And people begin to speak in tongues. And all these different people are out there and speak different languages. And they all begin to hear the gospel preached in their language. And they begin to, um, to repent and believe the gospel. And about 3,000 people give their lives to Christ right there on the spot. It's just this incredible outpouring of God's Spirit that happens at this time. On the heels of this, you've got Peter and John, two apostles that have been disciples, who are going about preaching and sharing Christ and sharing this wonderful message how Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer, you find out in Acts chapter 3. And so they're probably going to pray at the temple. And on their way in, there is a lame beggar, uh, a Uh, a poor gentleman who cannot walk, who has stationed himself in front of the temple to collect alms, which were just the uh, gifts to the poor that they would give, hoping that somebody would give him some money to have something to eat uh, because he was unable to work. And James and John do not have any money when they come to him. They say, you know what? I don't have any money, but what I do have, I give you. And Peter looks at him in the eye and he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, you rise up and walk. Pretty bold thing to say, you know. Try that next time when you're um, <laughs> uh, in downtown or something, but um, pretty bold, right? And he does. The guy gets up and starts walking, and he starts sleeping, and he starts up. and he runs into the temple, and he's praising God, and it obviously causes quite a scene, because this guy had been like this for years. People had known that this guy couldn't walk. This was not like some sham miracle like you sometimes may see out there. This was like very obvious, a movement of God. And God is working and doing incredible things to affirm the preaching and the teaching of the apostles. And so this guy goes running into the temple and it causes this big scene. And Peter sees that all these people are clamoring around this guy going, how is this guy walking, right? And everybody, everybody in the temple, all these people... Thousands, ultimately, we're going to find out. Their attention is just captivated. And so Peter sees the opportunity. He stands up and just starts preaching and sharing the gospel and pointing people to Jesus. And as this is happening, this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 4. He's going to be interrupted uh, by the religious leaders of that day. Look with me in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Just men. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Very familiar verse. Incredible teaching here coming from Peter. Bold preaching coming from Peter. Peter. And so the rulers of the Sanhedrin... Or who these rulers are that have, that have come together. The religious leaders of that day and the stewards, so to speak, of the temple. And you see the Sadducees are mentioned here. And they were really influential at this particular time in history and with the temple and, in the, San, and in, in the Sanhedrin. And the Sadducees were a group of people who generally, most likely, did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they didn't like hearing they were preaching someone was raised from the dead because that was going to get people to think that the, the great resurrection of the dead was about to happen or something like that. And they didn't even believe in that, so they didn't like it for that reason. But they were also in cahoots with Rome. Rome helped keep them in power in the temple. It would help make sure they got, got to be the, the, the high priest was one of their people and not one of the Pharisees. And so they wanted to keep Rome happy. And Rome wouldn't have liked to hear the idea of some revolution going on through a Messiah being raised from the dead and getting the people all worked up. And so for political reasons, for, for religious reasons, all kind of cultural reasons, they did not like this talk of this man being raised from the dead. And so they are trying to shush it. And so they ask them, they call into question how this miracle happened. Now take note, they did not question whether the miracle had happened. They couldn't refute it. It was very clear that a man that they knew couldn't walk was now walking. So they didn't say, now, well, how did you pull this gimmick? How did you pull the old switcheroo? Instead, they said, how did this happen? By whose power? By what name? What authority do you have to do this? Who gave you the authority to do this? Is this magic? Is this demonic? What is this? And, they, and Peter looks at him boldly and says, it was Jesus healed him. It was the name of Jesus, the guy you crucified, who God raised from that. He's clearly pointing out to them, you were at odds with God. There has been a man who has been born and who has lived, who you murdered. But God is raised from the dead. And this proves that you're on the wrong side of history on this. You're on the wrong side of God on this. And it is by this man. This man is the one who has the authority and has the power to heal him. And this same one who gives physical healing, gives spiritual healing. The word save in verse 12, right? That word for salvation. And it is by His authority and by this name that He's saved. The same word that's being used for healing in the other part. And you see it in the Greek. And the reason for... In the Greek it's the same word. And the reason for that is... Is because it's pointing to the fact that the physical miracle... Was pointing to an even greater truth that of the spiritual miracle. That the same one who brings physical healing brings spiritual healing. And just as He brings physical healing... He brings spiritual healing. And only He brings spiritual healing. And so, where did Peter get an idea like this, is really what it boils down to. To stand in front of these religious leaders and say, it happened by Jesus, and by the way, Jesus is the only one through whom salvation comes. There is salvation, no other name under heaven, but this guy. Where does he get that kind of idea? Well, it starts with Jesus. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus is about to go to the cross. He is preparing them for his death. He's told them he's going to die, and he's about to comfort them. And Thomas is kind of confused because Jesus is telling him that I'm going to go away, but you're going to come and be with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, And Thomas is like, we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Very exclusive claim. In John chapter 10, verses 7 through 9, it says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. So right there is two of the I am statements of Jesus. Two times, or seven times in the Gospel of John, where Jesus makes these I am statements, these declarative statements that were alluding to the fact very clearly that he is God. All right? And so the, it's the equivalent, when Jesus says, I am, he's pointing back to the Old Testament when God revealed his name to Moses and said, I am who I am. And so they would have understood in Jesus' culture exactly what Jesus was doing. That's one of the reasons they wanted him dead. They believed he was a blasphemous for claiming to be God. And so, by claiming this, he's also saying, listen, and you need to know, I am the door to the sheep. The way you become one of the people of God, the way you come into God's family, into God's pasture, is through me. And he says, the way you get to heaven is through me. In fact, no one gets to God except through me. He said something similar in John 3. You know, we love John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. Well, how about verse 18? Whoever believes in Him in Jesus is not condemned. This is Jesus talking. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And there's other verses we could point to, but the point is Jesus very clearly taught throughout his ministry that he was the exclusive, had the exclusive claim on how to get to God. That he was the only way to heaven. Now, the apostles interpreted him this way as well. You see Peter preaching on it. Uh, the apostle John in 1 John five twelve writes, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Very cut and dry. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy two five there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men the man Christ Jesus and so Paul John Peter Jesus throughout the New Testament you see this the exclusive claim that only the, the claim that only Jesus can exclusively get you to God and thus to heaven now why is that to understand why Jesus is and can be the only way to God you need to understand I believe it helps us to understand some things that are revealed in this text, all right? And we're going to use this text to kind of, to kind of walk through this. The first thing we need to understand is man's sin problem. Now, this sounds very very basic for us as Christians. Uh, to, if you're a believer today, you're like, okay, I, yeah, I get that I have a sin problem. Jesus took care of that. But that's at the very heart of why Jesus is the only way. Notice he says in verse 12, Acts 4.12, Peter says, there is salvation and no one else. So, in other words, he's claiming that there needs to be salvation, See, sometimes for the positive, we miss the converse of that statement. He is saying that there is a need for salvation. And claiming Jesus is the only way to God, we must understand we are claiming there is something that has separated man from God and that something has gone awry and it needs to be fixed. To say there is salvation in no one else, to say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, is also to point to the fact that man needs a way back to God. That things are not okay between us and God. Man needs saving. And only... Christianity can adequately explain the world. We've seen it this week, murders, horrible things that happen in our country, dark things that happen in our country and around the world and no other religion can adequately explain the brokenness of this world apart from Christianity. The reason for that is is because Christianity is true and it teaches us that there is something that has gone wrong in this world and this world is broken. And relationships are broken, and bad things do happen, and people do horrible things, and people suffer horrible things because sin has entered the world, and the world is therefore broken. And we experience this brokenness in a myriad of ways. Paul writes in, in, to the Romans, and, um, in Ro, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, No one is righteous, no, not one. He writes down in verse 23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Very familiar verses to some of us. The position of the Bible is that the world is a broken place full of broken people due to sin. And that all of us, all people, every man, woman, boy, or girl, are sinners in need of saving grace. And that's all nationalities, all cultures, all races, all demographics. And that's the problem. The problem is that because of our sin, we stand in judgment. Under judgment. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. You know, when you work, you earn wages. My first job, one of my first jobs was at Piggly Wiggly, right? Back in Alabama, we had Piggly Wigglies. I don't think we have those here. We have Winn-Dixie and we have Publix everywhere, right? You can throw a feather up in the air, and it'll float and land on a Publix. And in Alabama, that was Piggly Wiggly. And so that was, and at the end of the week, I would get my check, right? Or I would go cut yards, or I would go wash cars, and I would earn wages, right? And I never questioned whether or not they should pay me. I thought, well, you work, you earn it, right? So pay me, that of thing, and that's probably the way you think when you go to work. Well, it's the same way with with sin. We we need to understand that we, we earn the death. We earn judgment. We've earned God's wrath. We we don't look at it. We don't say, how in the world? We, we, we tend to, in our culture, to teach that people are, are born into this world naturally good and innocent. Right? And that, and that sometimes you put people in certain circumstances and situations and ba- and they turn into bad people. But the Bible teaches something different. It teaches that we're born broken. We're born messed up. We're, we're born bent toward Sin, and that we earn for that sin, the wages for that sin, the payment for that sin is death. The Bible explains it also in Romans one eighteen this way, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth god 's wrath is revealed, right? And so the story of the Bible is that God, who is just and holy, created the world for his glory and created you, created me to worship him. And starting with the first humans, we've rebelled against that. In fact, we've we've rebelled against God. We've even replaced God in our lives. And we've chosen to rule over our own lives is ultimately what we've all chosen to do. And so we are by nature sinners and therefore destined for wrath. And only when you fully understand what the Bible teaches about sin and about God's judgment and man's need for salvation can you begin to understand why there would only be one way to heaven. If everybody's basically good, and if if default mode is heaven for everybody, then at the end of the day it makes no sense that there's one way to heaven. But if man is sinful, and if man is depraved, and if man is in need of a Savior, then all of a sudden... It makes sense that there needs to be a way. And then we've got to find out, should there be more than one way? And that brings us to the second thing. And that's, we need to understand God's gracious plan. He says, there is salvation in verse 12. So the positive side of that is, is that there is salvation. And then he says, in no one else, right? And then at the end of that verse, he says, for there's no other name given among men. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. We'll read right through it. We notice all the exclusive stuff. No other and We're going to get to that. No other name. No this, no that. And we'll miss... Given among men. It's the same Greek word used in John 3.16. For God so loved the word, he gave. It is a gift. It is given. In other words, this didn't just happen. This isn't just happenstance. This is an act of God. This is something that we didn't do. This is something God's done. And salvation, the fact that it even exists for sinners, is because of God's gracious plan to give a Savior. Now, God has given man exactly what we don't deserve Okay, we said we deserve what we've earned is payment for our sin which is death and separation from God and God's wrath on our lives and all that but what God has chosen to offer to us and to give to us is a savior Right? giving us what we haven't earned and what we don't deserve is what God offers us in Christ. That's God's plan of grace. And so Peter even preaches in this passage, he says, he looks at these, these religious leaders and he says, this is the Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified and whom God raised from the dead. See, the resurrection of Jesus proves that his death meant something. It, it, it validates it. It validates all of Jesus' claims. If he's risen from the dead, pay attention to him. If he didn't rise from the dead, he's really not different than anybody else. But if he really raised from the dead, then it changes everything. That's why when you read Acts, they're always talking about the resurrection. Because Christianity hinges on it. In Romans 1.4, Paul writes about Jesus. He says, he was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. How do you know Jesus is God's son? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. All right, It proves that Jesus is God's son. Now, in this phrase by Peter... We also see that from man's perspective, Jesus was murdered. Whom you crucified, he says. But what they didn't understand is that from God's perspective, that there, this was the plan all along. From man's perspective, Jesus is delivered over. Jesus is falsely accused. Jesus is murdered. But from God's perspective, oh, this was, this was his plan all along. He knew when he created us that we would fall. He knew before he ever breathed life into Adam and Eve, that at one point, some point he going to have to save them. He knew it because he's all knowing. And he knew that the only way for that to happen would be for him to come himself and pay the price in the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son. This is God's plan of grace. Dr. David Platt, president of the International Mission Board, pointed out how the story of the Bible, when understood properly, shouldn't make us think how there can only be one way to God, but make us amazed that there's any way at all. Isn't that true? When you really understand sin, and then you understand that God has a plan. I mean, when you really understand sin and what we really deserve, you don't sit back and question, how can there only be one way? You're amazed if there's any way at all. Think about it. If God is really God, and if He really created us, and if He really loves us, and if He really made us to live and to worship Him, then it makes sense that We should. And if we've really done what the Bible says, and from the very beginning our very first ancestors have rejected God's love and rejected God's rule over our life and tried to go our own way, if God really did choose for himself a people out of the Old Testament, and they really did reject him and kill his prophets, if God really did send his son into the world and we murdered him, why in the world we shouldn't be wondering, why in the world is there only one way to heaven? We should be amazed that there's a way to heaven. We don't deserve one. You know, if we were in a skyscraper this morning that was on fire and we didn't think there was any way we were going to make it out, and then all of a sudden over by the window comes crashing in the big, huge ladder, and the fireman on there goes, All right, come on, we're going down. You know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't stop and you go, Wait a second, we're going to talk about this. I want to know why I can't take the elevator. I want to know why I can't take the stairs. Who are you to tell me the only way I can get out of this burning building is to go with you? No, you wouldn't do that. You'd probably knock him off the thing running into his arms, right? You're just thankful that there's a way. And the problem that we have many times in wondering how in the world can there only be one way? You haven't realized your building's on fire. That you are on very shaky ground. And that apart from rescue, you will perish. Until we understand God's judgment, God's holiness, and God's wrath, and our sinfulness, we can't properly understand this last point, and that is the uniqueness of Jesus. The third thing is here we have to understand Jesus' unique role. We are sinful and deserving of suffering for our sin, and God is gracious and has made a way for us to be made right with Him. And Jesus is, we're going to see, the unique person that was able to accomplish God's plan of saving people. He says in verse eleven that Jesus is the cornerstone. He says, "This is the stone that you the builders have rejected, and God has made him the cornerstone." He's quoting from the Old Testament. He would he would use this again in First Peter. Um, he's referencing Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen and Psalm one eighteen verses twenty-two and twenty-three. The cornerstone is the foundational piece in the structure. Some believe it, it was the capstone. I believe it's most likely the cornerstone that goes at the foundation, right? It, it's the signature piece. It's the, it's the most important piece in building the building, or in their case, building the temple. Everything else is built upon it. And the parable in the Old Testament that was used was that the people would throw out a stone as worthless, but then God would take that stone and make it the most significant one on which the whole thing is built. That's that's that, that's where this is pulled from in the Old Testament. And Israel kind of always kind of looked at it like that was them. In some ways it, it was. But right? they were the people that God chose. But what we're beginning to understand is that really this is a messianic prophecy is what Peter's saying. And he's saying it's just like you're over here and you're building something and you're going through the rocks trying to figure out which ones to you and you look at one and it just doesn't look quite right to you. It's kind of wanky looking. You want flat rocks and this one's kinda of round and so you just kinda of take it and you toss it over here and say that one's worthless and you go about building, but then God comes along and he says, That's the one, and I'm gonna build everything on. You say that can't be right, it doesn't look like it fits. And that's kind of what they did with Jesus, right? He's from Nazareth. He's a Nazarene. What good comes from Nazareth? Who's his mama? Who's his daddy? How can how can he be the Messiah? He's just some carpenter, right? And they begin to make up all kinds of stories about him and his birth and everything else and because they were rejecting him as the stone, but this is what they didn't understand it had been prophesied. This is the way it was going to be. Jesus is unique. He is the cornerstone. He is God's chosen precious instrument. The point Peter's making is that there's no one like Jesus. He's the unique Son of God. Only Jesus is God who became man in order to redeem man. Think about that. In John chapter 1, verse 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's referring, he goes on to show us in John 1, he's referring to Jesus. And he says, Jesus is the Word. And he's always been with God. Okay, he's always been God. And then in verse 14 of chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's this picture of Jesus is eternal, and He's God, and He became flesh. He's God, and He's man. And only Jesus is God who became man in order to redeem man. He's unique. Only Jesus lived a sinless life and could have... Um, and is possible... And only He has lived a sinless life and made it possible for Him to be the perfect sacrifice for man's sin. For For sinners. In 1 Peter 2.22, Peter writes that Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. That's why the sinlessness of Christ is so important. Unless he's sinless, he can't pay for your sins. And then only Jesus was able to pay that sin debt and satisfy God's wrath and ultimately make us righteous so that we have a right standing with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, For our sake, he made him, he made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He had, In other words, he, he had not sinned, but he treated him like he was a sinner, even though he wasn't, so that in him, in Jesus, that we, as you and me, might become the righteousness of God. So that sinners could be made righteous. And see, so only Jesus is able to do that because he's God and he's man, and because he's sinless. It, it took all of that, because if he's just a man and he's not God, he's not able to bear the punishment for the sins of the world. A human being can take that. And if he's God, but he's not man, he can't live. If just God, and he doesn't take on a human form, he doesn't have a human body, and he's not exposed to human temptations, then how does he live the sinless life that we needed to live? See, if he's the mediator between God and man, he has to be both God and man. Only Jesus. So, Peter references the fact that there's no other name under heaven. And what he's saying here is that this is a particular person That was born and lived and died and rose again at a particular time and place in history. And only in him can you be saved. Only he has the power of the authority to save sinners. He's God's chosen instrument. Now, my name will not bring you salvation. Your name will not bring you salvation. Salvation. Muhammad's name will not bring you salvation. The greatest uh, philosophical figures of history, his name cannot bring salvation. There are some names that you can throw around and they can get you in important places. Uh, they can get you up the ladder at work. I mean, there are names that you can put on a resume that look really good. But there is no name other than the name of Jesus that can give you right standing with God. That's what Peter's saying. His name is unique. And this, his name is a reference to his person and his work. Because when you say the name of Jesus, you're saying the one who was born in Nazareth, who lived a sinless life, who was both God and man, who died on a cross for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath of God, who three days later rose from the dead. That guy. His name. It's his reputation. It's who he is and what he's done. That's why it's not, it's not, well, you know, I called on Jesus to save me, so therefore, you know, I, I am saved. Well, yeah, if you trusted in His name, the fact that He died and He rose again, and He is your only hope to heaven, and when you genuinely trust in His name, you're saved. And so, he's pointing to the uniqueness of Christ. Now, what some people try to do is they try to play Jedi mind tricks with the Bible. And it goes something like this. Well, since the Bible teaches that Jesus is the only way then maybe a good moral Muslim or Hindu or atheist, etc., can be saved by Jesus and just not know it. He is the only way and there's, they cannot know it. You know, they're just, they're just following the light they've been given is what, is what the phrase is many times. But see, to say that there is no other name means you must believe upon that particular person he's being very exclusive he he's not just saying there when he said it's that phrase no other name no other person no other reputation there is no other one and then he begins the rest of acts you see them talking about how you access this you believe upon this name it's conscious faith romans ten thirteen says whoever everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved right and so there's no Hey, I didn't realize it. You know, I thought, I, was, I thought that I was worshiping Allah. I thought that I was worshiping myself. I thought that, But I ended up in heaven. And because I, little did I know it, uh, Jesus was pleased with my worship of Allah. Or you name the other false god or whatever. No. That, make, that doesn't jive with the New Testament. If that's your viewpoint, that can be your viewpoint. We live in a free country. You just need to know it's riddled with errors and completely out of line with the New Testament. There's no other name under heaven. Think about that. He said, what about other cultures? Well, people in other parts of the world. Under heaven. He didn't say under Jerusalem. He didn't say under the United States of America. He said under heaven. So he says, you go across the globe. No matter where you go on the earth, there's one name that'll get you into heaven and get you a relationship with God. It's the name of Jesus. And he says, given among men. In other words, there's no other person that's ever lived in the past, in the present, in the future that will be able to have that name, only the name of Jesus. It's very exclusive, what he's claiming. Now, you see this play out in Acts. In Acts chapter 10, it's on the screen. You read about a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius was a a Gentile guy who believed in the God of Israel. So he was like... You and I or at least most of us in the room. He was Gentile. He was non-Jewish. But he believed that Israel's God was the one true God, which is kind of a rare thing in that day. And so he worshipped and he prayed and he gave and he was generous. We're going to read this. And Peter, in Acts chapter 9, has the, in Acts chapter 10, um, has this dream where God tells him he better get ready. He's preparing his heart, preparing Peter's heart, for the fact that God's about to do some saving among the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And then Cornelius has a dream. And his dream, or excuse me, his vision, he has a vision. And in this vision, he is told that there is someone in a particular place that he needs to talk to and have brought to his house. And it's this guy named Simon who's known as Peter. And so that's what's kind of happening here in Acts chapter 10. And look how Acts 10 describes Cornelius, starting in verse 1. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a, centur- a centurion of what was known as the Italian Cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So this is a good guy. This is the guy who, man, I mean, he is hes praying to the God of Israel. He is giving money. He is He is generous. And he has this vision, though, that he needs to talk to this guy named Peter. And this is what happens. Peter goes to his house. Fast forward. Peter shows up. And he says, I've been told to have you come to my house, and I need to listen to you. And Peter then realized what's going on. And this is what Peter says to him, starting in Acts 10, verse 39. Peter says, We are witnesses of all that he, talking about Jesus, did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him, they put Jesus to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one who appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that, you know, because this guy, he's been reading the Old Testament because he believes in the God of Israel. He says all the prophets point to him, they bear witness that everyone who believes in him and Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then all of a sudden something crazy starts happening. People start speaking in tongues, and I mean it's like this crazy scene happens, right? That would kind of weird Baptist out, and it's affirming the fact that they have believed on Jesus at this particular time and that this gospel has went to a new people at a new place at a new time. The same gospel, the same spirit has come to a new people. And Peter looks around and he goes, Well, I guess we ought to baptize these guys. To have the Holy Spirit, I guess we should baptize them, showing that they're declaring that Jesus is their Messiah. And here's my question for you. If this God-fearing man needed to hear the gospel and have his sins forgiven through the name of Jesus, then what religion, what culture, and what people group on this planet is does not need that? If Cornelius didn't need to hear and believe in Jesus, then why did God orchestrate this? Why did God give him a vision? Why did God give Peter a vision? Why did God give Cornelius a vision? Why did God obviously in the book of Acts... Did you know this is the longest narrative in the book of Acts? It stands right at the center of the book. You know why that is? It's extremely significant. It's God's way of saying the gospel will go to the nations. It will go to the Gentiles. This isn't a Jewish thing. It isn't, it isn't something that can be contained in Jerusalem. It must go to the ends of the earth. Why would God do that unless everybody on the planet needs Jesus? Listen, if people on the other side of the world who have never heard about Jesus don't need to hear and believe the gospel, if they're safe, if they're safe from God's wrath, safe from God's judgment because they've never believed the gospel, then the missions movement, the global missions movement that we have been a part of is one of the biggest travesties in human history. Because what we did is we sent millions of missionaries throughout time who have gone around the world and who have exposed people to Jesus and every one of them who has not believed in Him is one time was safe and now they're not. You see, you're not lost because you heard the gospel and rejected it. You're lost because you're a sinner. You're a sinner. And your rejection of the gospel is just affirmation of that. It's not the beginning of it. See, we get it in our mind that you go to hell because you reject Jesus. When what we mean by that is somebody presents to you a gospel tract and explains it to you and you reject it. And then now you better watch out. If you die without accepting him, you're going to die and go to hell. And what we need to understand is that is not the position of the Bible. The position of the Bible is that the world is lost and alone and without God. And that God, Romans 1 says, has revealed Himself through creation. He has shown His glory through creation. He has given light to the entire world. And every single person has rejected it. And we've chosen instead, the Bible says in Romans 1, to worship creation instead of the Creator. And you see that when you go around the world. And you see that in our own nation. Everybody needs the gospel. Jesus is, in fact, the only way. And the only way means that you must consciously place your faith in Him. That every person who is accountable for God before their sin, okay, needs a Savior. Now, Romans 10, 14 through 17 is one of the best passages to exemplify this. Let me read it to you. It's right after verse 13, which we read, that says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then Paul says, "Well." How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And then in verse 17 he says, So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That passage is very clearly saying, that, the only, that everybody needs the gospel and that the only way they can believe it is to hear it. And the only way they can hear it is if we tell them. And the only way we can tell them is if we're sent. And that they need to hear the gospel because faith comes through hearing the word of Christ. Saving faith in Jesus Christ doesn't come in looking at the stars. What God has given us in creation is enough light to look and behold and see is glorious and then we reject it. So we need the divine revelation of Jesus. God and the person of Jesus Christ, God the Son, we need to hear and believe on Him to save us from our sin. Jesus is the unique Son of God and salvation is only found in Him. So the question then becomes, how do you communicate that? In a very pluralistic culture that believes that there are many paths to God and that you are arrogant to believe otherwise, how do you communicate? Well, look how Peter did. Now, let's, let's understand something. Peter was in a tough spot. These people were not accepting of his message. These were religious people. These were people that were viewed as upstanding people, people that he would have probably looked up to as a child. And these are people that think that they are going to heaven. In fact, I they think they've kind of got the market cornered on that. And they've arrested him. So he's in danger of jail. He's being persecuted. And there's three characteristics I see here in how he communicated this. He, first of all, he was bold. The Bible says in verse 8, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he began to, he began to preach this very boldly. Verse 13 that we didn't read this morning says that after they interviewed Peter and John that they saw their boldness and understood that they had been with Jesus. See, this was a group of people that had authority that were respected in society, that could hurt him, that could inflict harm, but he was bold. Why was he bold? Because the Spirit of God empowered him for the moment, right? He was filled with the Holy Spirit. He he was yielded to God's Spirit in his life. He was submitted to God's Word in his life. He was following the path God had laid out for him, and he was trusting in God for strength and for help. And so when the opportunity came, he was ready because the Spirit of God empowered him for the moment. How much of our timidity and uneasiness and shyness and sometimes outright cowardice Comes from a lack of being filled with the Spirit of God. He so said, Where does boldness come from? It comes from the Spirit of God. Peter was a coward before the Spirit of God came upon him. This is a guy who denied Jesus three times before Jesus rose from the dead, was crucified and rose from the dead. But then post resurrection and post Pentecost, he's the guy leading the movement. Something changed. The Spirit of God was empowering Peter. He had seen a resurrected Christ and the Spirit had come at Pentecost in power upon the people of God and that brings boldness. It brings boldness. That's why you see in Acts the disciples gathering around. What do they pray for? When they get together they pray. They pray for boldness. Oh, they don't get around and go, God, we don't have the resources. Oh God, we don't have this. We don't have that. Oh, God, give us boldness. And then God gives them boldness and the whole movement just explodes for their boldness to proclaim Jesus. He had boldness, and he was clear. He was clear. He says, it's only through the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead. There's only salvation in that name. He's very clear about the gospel. He's very clear about who Jesus is. And we need to clearly communicate the gospel. A lot of times, some of the problems people have with Christianity and what it teaches is that we don't communicate it very clearly. We've got to communicate it clearly and faithfully. And it's very simple. It's very simple. It really is. It's so simple a child can understand it, but it's so deep you can spend all of eternity looking into it and being amazed more and more and more. It's, it's an incredible thing, but we've got to articulate it. We've got to be clear with it. There is a need in our culture like never before for clear and consistent declaration of the gospel. Very clear on the gospel. Who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, how salvation happens. And then he was inclusive. I thought this message was exclusive. Exclusive. I thought, it, you know, it's all about, you know, only only one way. Oh, yes, it's exclusive and it's inclusive. He says, there's only one name given among men. That's everybody. By which we must be saved. Now, one commentator pointed out, he said, it's very subtle. Don't miss this. He switches to the first person. Why is he doing that? Because he's inviting the Sanhedrin to Jesus. He saying, guys, there's only one name which we must be saved. That, that includes you, the guys who killed him. Uh, Those of you who wanted him crucified, uh, he he was given for you so so that you can be saved. It's very, very inclusive. We includes them. We includes us. We includes our friends. We includes our neighbors. We must not miss the fact that the gospel is not just exclusive. It is inclusive. Yes, there's only one way to heaven, but it's open to anybody that will believe. There's no other thing out there that's that inclusive. It's open to everybody. You say, well, you don't know my past. It's open to you. It's, I'm telling you, it's open to murderers. It's open to dictators. It's open to every, the worst people that you could think of in your mind. The gospel says, come and believe and be saved. And see, some people have a problem with that. Some people don't just have a problem with that. You mean to tell me a, a horrible mass murderer can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ before they die and never have to give an account for their sins? Yeah. It's exactly what I mean. It's exactly what I mean. It's crazy, isn't it? It's beautiful. Yeah, it's exclusive. There's only one way. But it is open to everybody. The most self-righteous person. The most moral person. The most immoral person. The most most heinous criminal. The gospel says, come and believe. And so we must realize that as we communicate something that's so exclusive, there's only one way that it is radically inclusive. And if all we communicate is it's exclusive and we don't communicate, come. Come. It's open to all who will believe. We must be saved. And we're including ourselves in that. See, that's the other thing. Sometimes people think it's arrogant. Because we kind of sound arrogant when we communicate it. We're not up here. What's the old saying? We're we're just beggars. Showing other beggars where to find bread. We're we're not the spiritually elite that have figured something out. But for the grace of God. But from God moving upon your heart. But for God opening your eyes. You too. You too would still be lost in your sin. Yes, there's only one way. But it's open to all. But all must come through that way. And all can come through that way if they'll repent and believe the gospel. That is the good news of the Bible. So yes, there's only one way to heaven. But we don't need to be shy about that. We need to be bold about that. Because there's a building that's on fire. And there's one way out. One way out. And if we get wishy-washy on that, and we start offering people multiple... Maybe you should just take, just take the stairs. Maybe it'll turn out... Just take the elevator. Maybe maybe it'll turn turn, out, turn around. Maybe, just, just camp out right here and, and see what, see what happens. You wouldn't do that in a burning building. Let's not do that with something way more eternal and way more critical. People's souls. There's one way. For our loved ones, for our friends, for our neighbors, and for the nations, there's one way. And we need to be the people that embrace that truth, that live that truth, that boldly, clearly, and inclusively claim the truth.